Well, this is the sermon that almost wasn't. (laughs) Some of you have already seen my post on social media last night, but I'll tell the rest of you the story. (laughs) Um, So we had an elder retreat this weekend up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and it was a great time. It was a full time. It was an exhausting time. (laughs) And uh, we checked out of our conference center up there and came back down, drove the two hours to Chicago got into the church parking lot here, and when I went to pull my bags out of the church van, I realized that I was missing one of them, my backpack. And I looked at Jeremy and and Andy, and I said, guys, my backpack is, I think I left it up there. And I said, my laptop's in there, and tomorrow morning's sermon is on it. And so I had to get in my car and drive right back up, two hours up to grab my backpack and then two hours back to come back and uh, I added a little extra four hours to my to my trip. Um, that was not a good way to spend the Saturday afternoon. Not a good way. But on the bright side, actually there's no bright side. Really. <laughs> there's no bright side. Never mind. Grab your Bibles and uh, open up to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up our study in 1 John today. Can you believe it? What have we been in? I think mid-January we started this study, if I, if my memory serves. So uh, about five months now we've been in it. By the way, would you like to know what's next? You would? All right, I'll tell you. Um, so where we're headed next, uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to be doing a six-week series on some of the, uh, kind of highlighting some of the women of Scripture. Uh, just stories of women in the Bible. We're going to be starting off with Rahab next week, and then we'll, we'll go six weeks just, just looking at how God has gifted and used various women throughout the history of uh, Scripture uh, for us to look to as examples and to point to Jesus. So that'll be the next series, and then we'll do a, a little short summer series following that. The details aren't totally worked out on that yet, but it's going to be similar to last summer. We'll just give some opportunity for for uh, development of some of our uh, aspiring preachers in the congregation. So we'll do about six weeks of that, and then in the fall we're going to jump into Ezra Nehemiah. All right. So now you've got a good look into what will probably take us up through Christmas. All right. But today uh, we finish up in First John chapter five. If you uh, if you haven't turned there yet, if you want to use a pew Bible, you can find it on page one thousand and twenty four. And I've titled the message this morning. Keep yourselves from idols. Our verse, and it's just one verse this morning, is verse 21, and that's pretty much what it says. If you want to look down at it, little children, keep yourselves from idols. One verse, all right? This is either going to be a really short sermon, but you know me better than that. Uh, instead, it's going to be something new for me. So this is, this is me getting to, to do my, my, uh, best impersonation of Charles Spurgeon this morning. Uh, cause this is what he would do. He would take one verse oftentimes and do a whole sermon on it. And I've, I've always marveled at that. Uh, because, you know, for me, I, I, I like to look at chunks of scripture and it's really helpful to do that. You just kind of follow along and there's usually a main idea and some various supporting points in there to work with. When you take one verse, You've got to be able to expound upon that, which means you probably ought to have some kind of uh, decent intelligence, which he had. Uh, and I've never wanted to test mine in front of you publicly, so I have not done that. Uh, 
but we're going to do that this morning. Uh, why one verse? Uh, because as I was looking at the, the whole of 1 John, and as we've, we've taught through it, uh, we've said many times throughout the course of the series that the main idea of 1 John was found in chapter 5, verse 13. I want you to look there again. And, and by the way, when I say we've said this, this is, I think, probably most identified by commentators, uh, by biblical scholars for centuries looking at uh, this, this text. Most point to verse 13 and say, this is the main idea. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, when we look at the book of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 20, I think, uh, John says something very similar there too. He says there's a lot more things that Jesus did, and I haven't written them all down. If I were, this book wouldn't be able to contain it. But I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Uh, that's a big emphasis. And of course, as we've, as we've looked through the, the book, those main themes are, uh, he's defending the apostolic authority of the Bible. And he's saying, look, you're hearing all kinds of other outward uh, influences and teachings, but, but what you've been given, what was delivered by Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to you is the message from God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the authoritative word and it's written so that you wouldn't be confused. That new ideas would, or they're gonna come, but when they come, you're not going to follow after them because what you've been given is sufficient it's firsthand, it's God-breathed, and it's true. And the point of it is that you would know Jesus, right? So this is the main idea of, of his letter. And, and, and yet when I get to the end of chapter 5, and I see this verse, little children, keep yourselves from idols, my read of that is that's sort of the negative way of saying what he said positively in verse 13. In other words, if the main idea positively stated is, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in doing so, you'll have eternal life. The negative way of stating that is, so stay away from other gods. He's it. Right? It, it's sort of like if I was to state positively, uh, as you're walking up a mountain road, I want you to be safe. I want you to arrive at the top of the mountain. Be safe. That would be a positive encouragement to you the negative would be stay away from the edge right and i think that's kind of what's happening here uh, so that's why i want to focus on this one verse it's it's a it's an important way for some of us who who uh, maybe when we hear positive encouragements uh, we really respond to that some of us need to respond to negative ones right stay away from the edge uh, and so that's i think what he's trying to do here at the end so what i want to do this morning is again i'm i'm ex bounding on this, uh, but there's not a lot of, of, of direction here. Uh, but I want us to do this. I want us to understand sin and idolatry. Uh, I want us to understand what he, when he says, keep yourselves from idols, what does he mean? Right? And, and just having a biblical understanding of what that means. What is, what is an idol? What is sin? That's the first thing. The second thing then is to understand why he has to say that to us, and it's because the human heart has a propensity towards idolatry. We are bent that way. We, we will run that way so fast and so easily. And, and just trying to, to demonstrate 
why that's true, how that's true, and, and maybe for some of us clarify how that happens in 21st century America or 21st century society uh, so that we're not stuck with this idea of idols and we think of Indiana Jones and the monkey statue and you're like, I, that has nothing to do with my life, right? It does. Not the monkey statue, but the idol. Uh, and then lastly, uh, just to understand really again, with those things in mind, what's John's point? Why did he write this to us? What, what does he want us to really see? And, and again, that, that's just pointing us straight to Jesus, right? Why is Jesus better than your idols? Okay? So we're going to understand sin and idolatry. We're going to understand our hearts and we're going to understand John's emphasis of looking to Jesus. Can I pray again? Father, thank you for your word and the time that we have now to, to hear from you. Um, and Lord, I, I am admitting and recognizing that because we're looking at such a small portion of your word, um, that I'm, I'm going to expound upon it. And in that, Lord, I have to pray that you would really guard me so that what I say is something that's driven by the Spirit as well. Uh, not that I am claiming inerrancy or uh, the same kind of authority of an apostle, but Lord, we believe that the preaching of the Word in the context of the local church is not just a human thing. That it's, it's, it's a way in which You communicate. And so Lord, I'm, I want to make myself humbly available to You that You'd speak in ways that bring us Your Word and Your truth and point us to Your Son. And I thank You, Lord, for this opportunity to, to look upon Jesus. Be with us, Lord. Guide us all in, in truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said the first point is to, be, to understand sin. Uh, to understand idolatry. And I want you to just think about that for a minute. When I say to you, what is sin? Or maybe if I were to say, what is a sin? What are the kinds of things that, that start to pop into your mind? Uh, and my guess is that it would be something like we would see in Proverbs 1. And I want to encourage you, if you, if you can, keep your finger in 1 John. Flip over to Proverbs 1. Uh, you'll, you'll find it on page 527 if you're using that pew Bible. Here's a description of, of sin that I think resonates with uh, probably the, the first thought that might come into our mind. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. He says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, and just kind of hear this in like the, the, this, this, the enticing voice that he's trying to convey, right? Come with us. Let us wait for blood. Let's ambush the innocent without reason. Like, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. Sheol being the place of the dead. Let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll all share it, right? We'll all have one purse. And the writer says, my son, don't walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Right? So, so you get the idea here that the, the father is speaking to his son here, and he's saying, you know, watch out for those seedy types. 
Watch out for the riffraff, right? That are looking for trouble, that are walking the streets looking for someone to abuse and, and just, just bad, just to do bad, right? Just to get in trouble. And so, uh, that is an, certainly an accurate description of what sin can look like, right? But I think it's often sort of the first way that we think about it. We think of sin as bad behavior, right? It's bad behavior. It's stuff that we would, we would, you can't really spin it into something good. It's just, everybody would agree. This is, this is naughty, right? Right? This is, this is seedy stuff. Um, and, and we agree upon that because there's some kind of, of mooring that we all have towards a, an understanding of right and wrong. Okay? Uh, so that's a way I think that we typically think of sin. It's the bad stuff. Um, Proverbs 6, you could flip over there too. I'll fill this out a little bit more. Um, page 530, just a couple pages over. Very famous passage on the things that the Lord hates. So again, these are this is sin, right? There are six things that the Lord hates. Verse 16 of chapter 6. Six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Here they are. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord amongst his brothers. So there you go. Pride, lying, running to evil. That same idea. These are the naughty, this is the naughty list, right? If you're on this list, Santa's not coming, right? This is sin. Um, now the seven deadly sins, uh, which you may have heard of, were loosely based on this list and, but it's not quite the same, but, but in, in, uh, around 600 AD, Pope, uh, Gregory, the first, came up with this list of the seven deadly sins and uh, and it's sort of become this this uh, central list of things to avoid. And they're this. They're pride, greed, lust, wrath, gluttony, envy, and sloth. Uh, they're all bad things, right? So here's the thing. As we consider that, we can say, okay, yes, the, the Word of God speaks against those things. They, are, they really are naughty. They're bad behavior. Right? Um, but when we look at our society and we live in sort of this, I don't know what you even call it anymore. We'll call it for simplicity, sort of this postmodern society. How do postmoderns view lists like that? In other words, how do we apply an understanding of sin into a culture who, who, who doesn't necessarily have the same categories of right and wrong? What's naughty? And so, I want to help us to think through how postmoderns would view sin so that we can get a better understanding of, not, not that, that we would change the definition of sin, those things are sinful, but expand upon it so we better, even for our own hearts, can identify the sin that God is really against. God's not really just sitting up there looking for naughtiness. What's He looking for? How do postmoderns view the things we call sin? I, I listened to this really fascinating uh, podcast just just this last month, it was uh, it was the TED you know TED Talks, so TED Radio Hour podcast, and it was dealing with the topic of the seven deadly sins, uh, and they were they were going to examine each of these seven deadly sins: pride, greed, lust, wrath, gluttony, envy, and sloth, and interview sort of an expert uh, on those topics to help us understand what what is that 
thing? And is it really deadly? Is it really sinful? Um, fascinating thing, and it began with an interview with a, an author named Christopher Ryan. And he has co-written a book with his wife uh, about sex and lust. Okay, I, I, I don't remember the title. I didn't even bother to write it down. I'm not really suggesting you go read it. But, but, but I want you to listen to what he said on the podcast. He said this. He's asked about lust. And he says, it's interesting because if you look at the other seven deadly sins, if you look at the famous Old Testament line, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, you think it's about protecting your neighbor's marriage. But, he says, if you look at it in context, it also says, nor his house, nor his ox, nor his servants, etc. So it's really, according to him, it's really about protecting his property. And so his conclusion is, so that's what sexual monogamy is all about. It's just an institution designed to protect the property of the father or husband. And he says, it's not a response to any sort of evolved tendencies. So he's saying it's, look, this idea that monogamy is right and, and lust and, and promiscuity is wrong, that's not a sin. It's just an institution that men who had lived in a misogynistic society designed to protect their stuff. Okay? Then the podcast host says, so what he's suggesting is that monogamy is not only a basic human invention, but by being monogamous, by resisting the sin of lust, we might be acting in a way that undermines our very nature, even our survival. He continues, Christopher Ryan, to assert that Darwinian evolution required our ancestors to have multiple sexual partners. Right? You gotta, you gotta propagate the species, right? So Darwinian evolution requires this, but he says that they weren't sleeping with strangers, but rather they could very well have loved these partners because they were within their hunter-gatherer communities. They would have known each other well. So to, to insist that a Darwinian view of just multiple sexual partners and, and sort of lust ran rampant is, is, is seedy or bad. No, they, they knew each other. They probably cared about each other. They, they loved each other. And further, the idea of monogamy, he says, was a social construct that came about later. And it's just a choice. It's an okay choice, but you, you know, it's not, it's not okay to condemn the idea of monogamy any more than it's okay to condemn somebody for being a vegetarian, but it's a choice that goes against our natural desire or inclinations to be omnivorous, whether that's sexually or with the things that we eat. Do you see what he's doing? He says this, he says, a casual, friendly promiscuity is the most natural, the most deeply resonant human behavior. And when we realize that, we can have confidence that there's nothing wrong with me when I desire multiple sexual encounters or I lust. It's just natural. So here's, here's my analysis of that. As I'm listening to this, I'm like, this is fascinating. Because what he's, he's doing here, and the host is affirming, is they're saying, look, we've changed the definition of right and wrong from an objective reality that's rooted in truth to something that's very subjective, rooted on my own feelings and appetites, right? I can say, I was born this way. I have these natural desires to do this, and therefore, to suppress that 
would be to deny what's natural. That doesn't seem right. That feels oppressive. Uh, and so people recoil at the assertion that a good and natural desire that they have could be labeled as sinful. And that creates an adversarial view towards God then all of a sudden, doesn't it? Because then, you know, here we are, we're, we're, we're Christians in society and we're saying, but God says, His Word says, and they're hearing, okay, so God says, your God says, suppress my human nature. This sounds like cosmic killjoy. This sounds like a God who wants to oppress us and oppress our desires and, and, and put us in bondage to His inhumane will. It's unnatural. And that sounds like it's life-limiting. Does that make sense? So, if we, if we just see sin as just naughty stuff, our natural inclination is to recoil against God's call for holiness because we feel like it's oppressive. And unfortunately, I think that's why that, and the church has, has probably spent too much time, uh, and I, and I think uh, 20th century fundamentalism didn't help this at all, just putting out naughty lists and saying, don't do this stuff. And it's created this, it's, it's not created it, but it's perpetuated this sense that God's just a killjoy. That's unnatural. But when we look at scripture, there's a, there's a, there's a more, there's a broader understanding of sin that we see. Yes, sin is the exercise of a bad desire or action. But the scriptures tell us all over the place that God has gifted us with desires. He's gifted us with the things to which those desires can be satisfied or fulfilled. But His intent was to have us enjoy the gifts and give glory to the giver, not just give glory to the gifts. So a biblical understanding of sin is not just bad behavior, but it's taking a God-given good desire or gift, and turning it into a replacement for God. God's not trying to deny us good things. That, that's the thing that I think we miss and our culture totally misses. God's not trying to deny you good things. God, <clears throat> excuse me, God created sex and your sexual desires. God created material things. So materialism is putting the emphasis on the thing, but the thing in and of itself is a God-given gift. Right? His intent, though, is that we would live with those things and with those gifts uh, properly how we were designed so that we're able to give thanks and give glory to God and use them appropriately, not turn them into replacements. So understand sin properly. As John says, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from sin, as he said many times throughout this letter. Don't just think about don't do naughty stuff. He's saying Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He's God. 
He's the answer. Don't replace him with anything less. And he has to say that because our second point is he understands the human heart's propensity towards idolatry. I think uh, when we were praying earlier, Victoria, I believe it was your voice I was hearing uh, praying, and you said something about our hearts are idol factories. Uh, a lot of us are familiar with that famous quote that, that's attributed to John Calvin because he says our, you know, our hearts really are a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, and John is, is understanding that, I think, as he's writing this. There's a, there's this sense in which we will, we will so easily, and all you have to do is look back at human history and you'll see it over and over again. We'll so easily look to replace God with something that He made, right? We worship the created things rather than the Creator. And, uh, you know, if, if you want a really good, probably the best modern understanding of what the human heart's propensity towards idolatry is, especially in our culture, I think looking at Tim Keller is one of the best places that you can look. Um, he's written extensively on this topic, and I'm about to start sounding a lot like him for the next few minutes, primarily because I'm quoting him, okay? Pretty much everything I'm about to say, I'm quoting Tim Keller. All right, but he, he wrote in, in a book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, which is all about this idea of idolatry. Uh, he, he wrote this. And think about, uh, again, the, the, the idea of, of idolatry. In John's day and age, he's writing from modern day Turkey. So you've got cities like Ephesus and nearby, you know, Corinth and all these kinds of places where there's a tremendous amount of Greek pagan influence. And they really were worshiping idols, like statues, right? Uh, they had statues for everything. They had statues for sex and money and power and, I mean, weather, you name it, right? And they had names. And, and so he's saying, don't run to those things. Uh, and Tim Keller is trying to help us see how that applies to our 21st century mindset. And he says, we might not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. So you might not be bowing before the statue, but you're still bowing before the God. He says, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice. We neglect family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. That's been a really challenging thing to, for me to consider over the, the few years that I've, I've heard him talk about this. Child sacrifice sounds so brutal, right? It sounds so anciently pagan. And we go, how could people do that? And yet we look around our society and say, people are doing it every day. They're not murdering their children. Well, some of us are. They're not, but, but that's not what he's getting at. They're sacrificing their relationships with them, though, at the altar of business and power. When most people think of idols, he says they have in mind literal statues, yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places of the world, and that is true, uh, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. Everybody does this. And he points to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. And this is, again, looking back now centuries, even into Israel, and he's saying it was happening there too. God says about the elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. So he's saying there to the elders of Israel, the human heart takes good things like 
a successful career or love or material possessions or even family uh, and, and, and turns them into ultimate things. You're taking a good thing, a gift, and you're making it an ultimate thing. You're looking at it like it's the giver. It's going to give you life. It's going to fulfill your needs. Our hearts, our hearts, he says, deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance. We think they can give us security and fulfillment if we attain them. And so he says, what's an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. It's something that you would say, you're, you're, you're seeking from it what really only God can give you. And a counterfeit God, and I want you to just process this, it's, it's anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. The idea of despair starts to come into that, doesn't it? There's a difference between being sad and despair. To be sad... It's much like the difference between happiness and joy. To be sad is circumstantial, right? I'm, I'm sad if I lose, like my grandmother died a few weeks ago. I'm sad at the loss of my grandmother. That's, that's sad, but I'm, but I'm grounded in my sadness that in a way that doesn't take me down the road of despair because I know that there's a hope that's far greater than a relationship that I have with my grandmother. Despair, on the other hand, is when I lose that thing and there doesn't seem to be hope. So if I lose my job, if I lose my portfolio and my bank account, if I lose the relationship that I have with a spouse or a child and I can't recover, it it just makes me think there's nothing left to live for. I've probably just identified an idol. Because I've, if I, if I have nothing left to live for, I've been looking for that thing, that material thing, to give me what only God can give me, which is life. He says it can be a romantic relationship, it could be peer approval, it could be competence and skill, it could be secure and comfortable circumstances, it might be your beauty, it might be your brains, it might be a great political or social cause. How many people are in despair right now after the events of 2016 and all the political maneuverings of last year? It could be your morality and virtue or even your success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life, he says, is to fix someone else's life, you might call that codependency, but it's really about idolatry. That's your whole purpose. It's, it's anything you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that... I'll feel my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll have significance. I'll have security. And again, for simplicity's sake, he just says, look, there, there's lots of ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. You've, you've given yourself in worship to a thing or a person and not God. The one true God. So when you, when you consider that, and you, and you can honestly assess your own heart a little bit, you start to go, oh wow. <laughs> I may not have a golden monkey statue in my living room, but I think I might be an idolater. Right? 
And we exist in a culture of, of idolaters. And, and, the, and the point, again, isn't just that God is looking to, to say, what are you doing that's naughty right now? Let me crush that. Let me crush that. He's saying, no, what are you doing that's, that's, that's completely upending what you were designed to be? How are you looking for life and satisfaction and security in stuff where you'll never find it? And how devastatingly sad and tragic is that? That's sin. That's missing the mark. You're, you're not being what you were created to be. And not only are you missing out on what you're created to be, but because He is the one true, sovereign, holy, righteous, worthy God, to do that is an offense to Him. Much in the same way that go back to the topic of lusts, it would be an offense to my wife who is the one and only, right? The one and only one in which my affections, uh, should be given to. If I were to just say, yeah, but it's cool if I look around at other women, right? It's, it's an offense. It's sin. So John's, John's trying to get us to see negatively the positive. It's only Jesus. Stay away from idols. Do you understand what sin is? Do you understand it's broader than just the naughty list? And, and do you understand your heart's propensity to run towards those things? And why you do it? What you're looking for? I think that's why he ends with what he says. And this is the third and final point of my sermon. Understanding the point of John's letter. No save, there's no Savior but Jesus. There's no Savior but Jesus. I want you to look back at verses 18 and 19. Um, give a little more context to this last verse that we've been looking at. Again, we're back in 1 John 5, verses 18 and 19. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. God has saved us from something. Not, he saved us from sin and to Himself, right? We, so if you're born of God, you're not going to keep on sinning. Why? Here's the because, but, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Why don't we keep sinning? Because Jesus' ministry in our lives is, is protecting us from the evil one. And this is what he says about the evil one in verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You're being protected from the one who has power over the whole world. And that's why your heart so easily runs towards those things because apart from Jesus' ministry in your life, you are rooted in the kingdom of Satan. And what does he want to do? He wants you to do anything but acknowledge the true king. Right? John's got a very simple worldview. And I think it's helpful for us to, to adopt this very simple worldview. Because when we talk about idols, there's, a, there's an endless, limitless supply of things that we can look to for our, to be our God. And we could get the idea that the Christian message, the message of the gospel is to just come alongside and say, well, you could choose to worship sex or power or, you know, whatever, money or, or you could choose to worship Jesus. And it's almost like you're going to, what's that restaurant? Um, Golden Corral? Right? Like there's a smorgasbord of opportunity here. What do I feel like today? I feel like a little, a little lust today. Maybe tomorrow I'll come back and I'll bring a clean plate and I'll go for the power, right? 
And Jesus, so, so let's just come to the Jesus section of the smorgasbord. And John's saying, that's, don't look at it that way. Do you understand the reality, the very simple worldview? There's, there's Jesus and there's Satan. So when I'm telling you to keep from idols, I'm not talking about a smorgasbord of opportunity. I'm saying, look, there's a lot of different ways that that could take shape, but do you understand what you're doing? You're coming under the reign and rule and power and authority of the one who has that authority over the world that you're living in. He's Satan. He's the evil one. And Scripture is really clear about that. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what he says. He says, what do I imply then? He's talking about idols and, and he's trying to encourage the Corinthians to avoid idols. And he says that, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. He's trying to say idols are nothing. They're kind of like what Libby read out of Psalm 115. They're just dead objects, right? He says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice to their idols they offer to demons and not to God. He's got the same understanding. He says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't take of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There's not a smorgasbord of opportunity here. You are either following Jesus or you're worshiping demons. It's a very simple worldview. And John here, in his vision in Revelation chapter 9, uh, echoes this. He says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they didn't repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Again, he's saying the same thing. There, there's, a, there's a repentance in idolatry that is a worship of demons it's satanic. So the sad truth about idols isn't that it's just, again, a smorgasbord option for you that you can dabble into a little bit here or there. And, you know, maybe, maybe you get a little convicted about that. Maybe you'll seek repentance about that. But, you know, today it just feels kind of good to, to swim in the lust pool. Don't be that naive. It's like the analogy of the mountain. Stay away from the edge. Because idolatry is is demonic. It's satanic. It's driving you away from the one true God who can save you from His domain, which is a, a death march eternally to hell. Satan's desire is to destroy you. And so idols will destroy you. They will. When we take good things, even good things, and we turn them into ultimate things, they entice us with the allure of stability and with fulfillment and happiness and freedom, but the reality is it's a death march. They are only enslaving us. How are they enslaving us? Well, because the gods of money, sex, power, popularity, whatever, these are cruel taskmasters that dangle carrots in front of us that you can never really grab onto. Right? You can never really grab onto it. That allure of power, there's always more power sort of out there that eludes and evades, right? The allure of, 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 of sexual uh, desire outside of God's good gift of it is, is a, it's an allure that, that just sort of breeds relational emptiness and you just never quite grab fulfillment, right? 
I shouldn't have to, I don't think, try to explain that. I think we know that intuitively. Why are we still running on the treadmill of pursuit of these things? Because they never really come. And they always let us down. And ultimately, what he's saying here is that they're not just going to let you down, they're going to cost you dearly with your life and your soul. I did a little uh, checking on this. I didn't by any means do extensive research on this, but um, just trying to identify how even the world knows that this stuff is killing them. And so I just did a little Google search about how uh, the stress of the pursuits of the American dream uh, and all those facets are, are actually causing us great damage to our health. Did you know that uh, workplace stress is responsible, they say, last year for about $190 billion in healthcare costs? Just stress from careers. $190 billion. Uh, it's costing us our marriages and our families. I, I talked about the, the, the child sacrifice that so often happens with the pursuit of, uh, of the idols of, of money or success. Uh, but marriage, too. Marriages are not just the divorce rate, but marriage, marriage itself as an institution is declining. This is God's gift to humanity. It's, it's declining as more and more people are finding that there's not the, they can't pursue what they want to pursue if they have to give of it themselves in any way to foster a marriage relationship. Birth rates are down. It's costing us our sanity. Listen to this. Over the last 15 years, antidepressant use in the U.S. has doubled with nearly 30 million people taking them regularly. That's a lot of us. Now, I'm not saying antidepressants are in and of themselves a bad thing. They're not, believe me. But if that many of us are on them, what does that say about what's going on in our hearts and our minds? There's a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety that's crippling us as a people. The suicide rate has increased 30% in the last 15 years. It's cost, you know what it costs us? It costs us our human dignity. That's not what we were made for. So John, John's like, look, this is a, this is a, a, a sorry, dead-end road. And it's, gonna, it's not just going to cost you your sanity and your health and your marriage or whatever. It, it, ultimately, it costs you your soul. It costs eternity. Look at verse 20. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why? So, so that we may know Him who's true. And we are in Him who is true. This is His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There's a death march of idolatry and then there's Jesus who comes and saves us out of that for life, eternal life, relationship with the Father. I want you to just consider the realities of Jesus. And I'll end with this, that John has been presenting to us all throughout this letter. If we're, if we're, if we're being in any way swayed to think that an idol of any shape or form is going to provide us what we need. Listen to what John's been saying now for chapters about what Jesus and Jesus alone can give. He says, Jesus is the giver of life. Chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus gives us access and fellowship with the Father. He gives you access to God. Fellowship with the One who made you. Chapter 1, verse 3. He propitiates God's justice for our sin, cleansing us and forgiving us. This idol worship that we commit in our hearts and in our actions condemns us before a holy God and Jesus takes care of it. That's amazing. 
He transfers us from darkness to light. Chapter 2, verse 8. He not only reconciles, reconciles us to God, but He reconciles us to other people. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 7. He indwells us with His own Spirit and gives us knowledge of the truth. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 13. He gives you confidence instead of shame. Chapter 2, verse 28. He loves you. He calls you His child. Chapter 3, verse 1. And He changes us. He transforms us to be good and pure like He is. Chapter 3, verse 3. He reassures our hearts when we're tempted to condemn ourselves. When you run after the, the idol and, you're, and, you, and, you, and the weight of the guilt of the sin crushes on you, He reassures our hearts. Chapter 3, verse 20. He helps us to overcome the enemy, Satan, because Jesus is greater. Chapter 3, verse 4. And He alone gives us eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus is not only God, John is saying. Listen, He's good. He's not just God. He's good. And He alone fulfills the things that your heart is longing for because He made your heart to long for them and to find that satisfaction in Himself. That's the whole point of 1 John. If you missed the whole series and you just came today, congratulations. You just got the Cliff Notes version of it all. Okay, That's the whole point. Jesus is better. He's good. He saves us. He redeems us. He cleanses us. He establishes us. And this is what John has written this letter to his readers and to us to, to understand. This is why we spent five months studying it. Look again at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that? Do you know that? If you know the Son, you do know that. You have life. We've spent a lot of time this morning confessing our sin. That's, a, that's an important step. We have to recognize our need. We have to recognize that we run towards idols. We have offended a holy God, but we have to recognize through the gift of the Spirit's enlightening of our, our minds and our hearts to understand that God did something about that. He sent His Son to save us from our sin. He died the death we deserve. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and He makes us like Himself if we believe in Him. Which means we confess our need and we depend on what He did and who He is to be sufficient to make us right before God. And when we believe, we have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the life that we have in Jesus. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and I pray for those that maybe in this room today who don't know you, Lord. I just ask that for all of us, help us to see our idols this week. Help us to, to have the, the light of Christ shine on those dark corners and crevices in our hearts where I, idolatry lurks, where Satan's influence and our flesh's, uh, uh, the sway of our sinful flesh is, is just driving us towards things that are hurting us and expose them so that we can confess them and, Lord, fill them with the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus at the cross to forgive us. Make us 
a holy people. Make us a people who, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.